Good. Well, we're in the second week of this series in Titus. And as we saw last week, this letter written by Paul uh, to Titus, who was on the island of Crete, was written giving instructions to Titus on how they might establish healthy church communities there on Crete. And the lessons in it are both relevant for us today and also immensely practical for us today. In in writing this letter, Paul knew that for the the people living on the island of Crete, the the first thing they were going to know about the Christian faith, the first thing they were going to know about Jesus was what they saw in the lives of the Christians there on Crete. The first thing they were going to know about the good news of Jesus was, did it make a difference in the way these people lived or not? The Cretans were watching, and and what they saw in the lives of those first Christians on the Isle of Crete would, would either intrigue them, impress them, cause them to find out about Christ for themselves, or would undermine the message and put them off entirely. The stakes were high. And actually, the same is true for us today. People may have all kinds of ideas about Christianity, but the most powerful apologetic for the Christian faith, the most powerful apologetic for the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus is what people observe in the lives of Christians. How we live, how we speak, how we interact, how we love, how we care, or otherwise. And we all have a unique part to play in this. And Paul, in this passage, takes care to give instruction to different groups of people, recognizing that, that different groups of us, different ones of us, will have a different part to play. He, he addresses older men and younger men and older women and younger women and, and bond servants or slaves or, in our context, employees. But it's not an individualistic message. This is about the picture that the church will paint together as a community, how as a community of believers we put the hope of Christ on display. We need in church mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. We need one another so that together we might grow to maturity as we encourage and spur one another on. And so that together we might point to Jesus as our only hope. God inspired Paul to write these words to Titus. And now we benefit from them as we read them in Scripture. So we're going to do as we usually do. We're going to work our way through. Uh, So we begin in Titus 2, uh, verse 1. Paul begins, the first person he addresses as he writes this letter... Uh, and in this chapter, is he begins with Titus, the senior leader in this Christian community. And he, he says to him, but as for you, now that's a bit strange if there's nothing preceding it. So we've got to remember what's just happened in chapter one. In chapter one, near the end of it, Paul talks about false teachers who were causing trouble, who were spreading a false gospel, who were telling people that they needed to add works to the finished work of Christ in order to be acceptable to God. And Paul contrasts now what Titus is supposed to do with those people. And he says, Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He begins with Titus as the leader and says, in contrast, those false teachers, Titus, teach what goes along with or what lines up with or what flows out of sound doctrine. See, right doctrine should lead to right behavior. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Titus is to teach the Cretan church what it looks like to live a life that puts the gospel of Jesus on display. And he begins then with the older men. And he says this, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, older men in the context that Paul was writing into would most likely be those aged 50 and over. So in context of life expectancy and also in the the vocabulary he uses and the way he writes about older men, the word he uses there 
it's likely that he's writing to guys about guys who are 50 and over. Now, we've got to contextualize this. In society, you are probably an older man if you're 60 plus. Generally, you're not old, but you're older. So just hear it in good heart. (laughs) And maybe in this room, because this is about context, and context is important, maybe in this room actually and in our church community, at this point in time, we're we're reasonably young. Our average age is, is quite low. We've got lots of youngers. And so probably in the context of Foundation Church, at this point in time, if you are 40 and over, then you're probably, I'm not saying you're old, I'm saying you are an older. You've got to get the er to, to not be offended. You're an older man. And so older men, this is how you are to conduct yourselves. The first on the list, sober-minded. What does it mean to be sober-minded? It means you should be clear-headed. Not clouded in the way you think and the way you respond by emotions, but instead able to think and see things clearly for what they are. Not responding rashly out of a kind of impulsive, emotional, or prideful place, but sober-minded, clear-thinking. You should be dignified. The verb used here means being so sensible and thoughtful in the way that you conduct your life that people will naturally honor you and want to hear what you have to say. That's the kind of thrust of the verb used there for being dignified. It, It means to conduct your life in such a way that people will honor you and will want your input. People will be drawn to you for wisdom and advice. Older men, to conduct yourselves in a way that that people are naturally drawn to you. There's a sense of gravitas to who you are. And self-controlled. This is going to come up again and again in this chapter. You'll see every person of every age faces this call to be self-controlled. But older men, you get it first. You're to be men who aren't given to outbursts of rage or indulging your desires or impulses. But instead, you're to exercise proper restraint as older Christian men. And then we get and faith and love and steadfastness. Faith and love and steadfastness are the things that enable you to live sober-minded, dignified and self-controlled. See, because faith is about your relationship with God. Love is about how you engage with others. Your care for them, your desire for the best for them, a a desire to set a good example, to be sober-minded and clear-thinking and dignified for the sake of others. And steadfastness, which is about perseverance. It's about a willingness to endure when things aren't easy. Have a willingness to endure for the sake of those relationships, a willingness to endure for the sake of your relationship with God, the faith, and a a willingness to endure out of love for others, for their good and for the glory of God, even when it's tough. Now, we, we just need to think a moment culturally about older men and how they're often thought of. Because as we get older, I think often, sadly, we can become more concentrated versions of ourselves. I don't know if you notice that. So we, we, as we grow up, we learn to behave a certain way around people. Uh, and we, we kind of, as we care about what people think, we kind of curb some of the more extreme facets of our personality uh, in order not to be shunned by people. But I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but as people get older, particularly some people who are really old, like their character just comes out more and more. It's like in a much more concentrated way. And so people who are naturally a bit grumpy or cantankerous, they just seem all the more so in old age. Or people who are impatient just seem all the more so as they age. The stereotype of the grumpy old man 
impatient, cynical, selfish. Like, sadly, that stereotype exists for a reason. And I think it's that without the regenerated heart that we have in Christ, without him renewing us, without the fruit of the Spirit being born out in our lives, then actually we just become more and more our sinful selves and it becomes more and more on display and that's not good. These things are not uncommon in our society as people's sinful nature is increasingly evident. And so older men who conduct themselves in the way that Paul says, self-controlled, sober-minded, dignified, walking in faith and love and steadfastness, men who, who walk in that way, who conduct themselves in that way, shine out as different. They shine out the transforming power of the gospel. It makes a difference. They demonstrate that actually they're, they're a new creation in Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. And they also bring incredible stability and security through their care and wisdom to a community of people. We all benefit when we have older men like Paul describes here around us, don't we? We, we would benefit from men like that in our community. And I, I'm glad to say we do benefit from men like that in our community. I want to thank you and encourage you to keep going. Older men, we need you at Foundation Church to play your part. You have a crucial part to play. Paul goes on, speaking to Titus. Older women, likewise, as like... He's just said that older men are supposed to be taught to live in keeping with the grace of God, to live in accord with sound doctrine. Older women are also to be taught to live in accord with sound doctrine, to, to live in keeping with the grace of God. And he says this means to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women. They're to be reverent in behavior. This word reverent is a really beautiful word. It, it means to be holy, to live in a way that is honoring to God, but also culturally, to, to the Greeks, it would have also cultured up the idea of a priestess. And, and Paul is essentially saying older women are to be like priestesses. And what does he mean by that? It means that they this is this picture of them living so evidently in intimate relationship with God, living so evidently in, in communion with their heavenly Father, living so clearly full of the Spirit of God that it, it just flows out of all that they do. These older women are to be reverent in, in this Wonderful, intimate relationship with God that, that shines out to those around them. And then he says, not slanderers or, or gossips we could read there. Paul is specific about two areas of self-control in particular for older women. And the first is about what they do with their mouths. As ladies, you're, you're to have a proper control of your speech. The gossip, slander, backbiting, tearing down, those things are so common in our world, aren't they? I mean, it's not just women. I'm not, that's, I'm not saying that, but Paul specifically is addressing older women here and saying your generation, your friends, your colleagues, those around you may be marked for actually using their mouths to, to gossip or to tear others down. But women, if you're a Christian, that's not for you. You're not to be marked by that. Watch out for what comes out of your mouths. Don't talk behind people's backs. Don't tear them down. Don't join in when the rumors start to fly, however exciting it feels in the moment. Yeah, we all know that kind of like, you know, feeling like you're in on the conversation. Paul says, hey, don't join in when the rumors start to fly. And then he goes on for something physical in terms of self-control. He says, 
Don't be slaves to much wine. It's about self-control when it comes to your appetites. Paul specifically uses wine as an example because in Greco-Roman society, older women were known, yes, for their gossiping, but also for their consumption of much wine. This indulgent and decadent behavior at parties and in social company. And Paul says this isn't right for older women. This isn't right for anyone, but it's not right for a woman who has found freedom in Christ to be given over to drinking to excess, given over to her desire for much wine and the feeling that might give her. Not to become a slave to your appetites or excesses. It might not be wine for you. It might not be wine for your group of friends. Maybe it's food. Actually, it can be all kinds of things. But the principle stands. And that kind of behavior, that lack of self-control, Paul wants us to see, would undermine the Christian message. And he carries on. The older women are to teach what is good and so train the younger women. The word teach used here is not like a picture of a classroom. It's not standing up and delivering a lesson in that way to someone. It's not about classroom learning, but about modeling in life, about getting alongside people and demonstrating and taking them with you in practical, kind of almost on the job, as it were, learning. That's the kind of learning that he's talking about, modeling it in life. This is discipleship. This should be happening in the church. And I'm glad in parts it is. Older women, the encouragement for you is to to come alongside younger women. To open up your home and life and heart and say, let's walk together. And to teach them as you do. This, This is a kind of teaching that only older women can do. See, all of the others, actually, Paul talks about Titus training the people to do it. Now, they're also going to play a part in each other's lives, but this is the one that that Titus isn't supposed to direct the younger women as a leader in the church in, in this instance. He encourages the older women to be the ones who train the younger women, to disciple them, to bring them on. There is a kind of teaching that a godly older woman can bring to the life of a younger woman that no man can bring. That's, that's what we see here. Like mothers in the faith who model maturity to them, who pass on their wisdom, who understand the challenges and having walked through them will help younger women find grace in the season of life that they find themselves in. The older women in the church aren't to hoard their wisdom. And they're also not to underestimate the contribution that they have to make in the life of the church. Older women in this room, do not underestimate the value of your contribution in this community. We need you. We need you. We've got some amazing godly older women. I didn't say old women, just again, I need to be really clear. Older women in the church community here. I'm so grateful to God for you. But ladies, if this church is going to be healthy, then we need you. We need you to play your part. We need you to get alongside the younger women and to to pass on what you've learned about the faith, to pass on what you've learned about walking with God, to help them as they struggle in different seasons, to allow them to benefit from your wisdom and experience and maturity. I want to urge you, Please, lean in and play your part. We need you. But in particular, what are they to train the younger women? Now, what what Paul gives us here is not an exhaustive list, but there are some key things that he says the older women are to train the younger women in. 
that accords with sound doctrine, that accords with the teaching of Scripture that will allow them to put the gospel on display in their lives. And he says this, they're to train them or, or urge them to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Now, he starts with love their husbands and children. You'll notice actually that all of these things uh, Paul writes are specifically about married younger women and he assumes they have children too. Our best guess is that all if not the vast majority of the people in the church community, the younger women in the community in Crete that he was writing to were in that position. That arranged marriages were much more common. People often married much or women younger. So contextually, married younger women with children, not all of you are in that situation. That's okay. <laughs> all right? The first thing he says is they're to be urged or taught to love their husbands and children. Now, this might seem like a really redundant statement. Maybe if you're not married and you don't have children, it might seem even more redundant to you than if you are. But they need to be trained or urged to do this because actually loving is a choice. Culturally, we think of love as, as this fuzzy feeling, this intense, romantic, or even kind of erotic emotion. And that's not what love in the context of marriage primarily is that may be an aspect to it, but it's far from the totality of it. And loving is a, a choice in marriage. It's an act of will. It's a decision. You will not always feel like loving your husband. Maybe like wives, some of you are kind of like, ah, oh, okay. And maybe if you're not married, you're thinking like, nah, not me. I'll always love him. He's great. Well, you will not always feel like loving your husband or children. If you don't have children yet, maybe you're like, surely if you do have children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes you're going to feel like saying, stuff them. I've had enough. <laughs> but this is the call of God in Christ that accords with sound doctrine and brings glory to God. You need older women who know the challenge of walking through this, who will impart their wisdom and encourage the younger women to keep going, who will remind them of, of God's great love for them when they are unlovely, who will remind them of the love displayed for them in Christ Jesus and how that in turn informs the way they are to love their husbands and children to be trained to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, Paul goes on. There are a myriad of ways that self-control needs to be exercised in all of our lives. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence that we're truly saved, but it's a constant battle. Younger women, you will know where this bites for you. You know right now where you struggle with self-control, you know, whether it's your thought life and what you dwell on, whether it's your speech, you're prone to gossip and slander, or whether it's food or whether it's what you watch, or I don't know what it is for you, but you know. Older women, you know too. I want to encourage you, younger women, look at the lives of godly older women who've gone before. Be open with them about where you struggle, where you find it hard to exercise self-control. Ask them to pray for you. Ask them to help you in it. Ask for their wisdom in how they've overcome some of those things. Receive their counsel. They're there for you, aren't you, older women? Big smiles and nods. They're there for you. The next thing Paul says is they're pure. Train them to be pure. Living according to God's design for God's glory, not, not conformed to the pattern of the world, but transformed by the gospel that they would live 
pure. And then we get to one of the more challenging bits. Paul writes that they should be trained by the older women to be working at home. Now, I want to be very, very clear about what the Bible does and does not say here. This is one of the most challenging bits because some people will take that and say, see, the Bible teaches that Christian women should not have a job. They should just be housewives and mothers and that is their call from God and that's that. It's very, look, it's right there. It's very clear. But that is simply not the thrust of this passage, nor is it in keeping with the whole counsel of Scripture the broader teaching of Scripture is absolutely not that women should not or cannot work outside of the home. But it's very clear also that their primary call in God, their primary task in God, is for the nurture and care of their family. If you are married and you have children, then the first place that God has called you to pour out yourself the first place, the first context that God has called you to minister is to your family. Married younger women with children, your first responsibility, your God-given priority is your family. There's, there's no black and white cookie-cutter answer about what women should do in terms of other work. Lots of people wish there was. Like, a, oh, well, maybe it should just be this many hours or this kind of thing. Like there isn't and there never will be and we need to be mature and grow past searching for that kind of simplistic answer on this kind of issue. The truth is for some families the right thing to do is to stay home. And for some it's absolutely right and appropriate to go to work. But this passage and the rest of scripture must cause us to stop and ask a question. It's got to cause us to stop and consider, is the rhythm of life we have established, is the pattern of work and commitments outside of the home that we have established beneficial or detrimental to family life? And if it is of detriment, then I think Scripture would encourage us and this passage would encourage us to make an adjustment. To say our, our first God-given priority is to the family. And if our pattern of life and work is detrimental to our family, then we must make an adjustment. It's about priorities. Now, I'm not pretending this is easy. It's not. Sometimes it's costly. Really costly. But I'm also not going to tell any of you what to do. You've got to settle in your own hearts before God what is right for your family. But in a culture that tells you that you can and should have it all, we have to pause and consider if that's really true. So I want to encourage you. Again, talk it through with your husband. But also... Seek out godly older women who have walked that challenge before, who have trod that tension before, albeit in a different generation, but who know what you're going through and who can give you wisdom, give you wise counsel. Paul continues, they're to be kind. Again, a bit like loving your husbands and children, this seems like a kind of slightly benign instruction. They're to be taught to be kind. You kind of think, well... Yeah? <laughs> like, uh, it's not very groundbreaking, Paul. But the truth is that life is not easy. Home life is not easy. Juggling home and work is not easy. And that's what so many of you do. Raising children is not easy. It's exhausting. I know that. Children often seem ungrateful. They do. Children often, particularly when they're very young, seem utterly oblivious to the amount of time and effort and energy that you have put into caring for them and providing for them. And that can easily lead us, can easily, younger women, 
I know from talking to my wife, can lead you to feeling an amount of resentment towards your children at times. When you think, man, they just, I do so much for them. They just don't seem to care. And so this instruction, the younger women are to be taught, urged, modeled by the older women to be kind, is important because it's not always easy. You need people who are going to help you to do that for the good of your family and the glory of God. Because to continue to be kind in the face of those challenges, to continue to be kind in the middle of sleepless nights and toddler tantrums, to continue to be kind when there's food thrown on the wall for the fifth time that day, to continue to be kind when you tread on a Lego brick and you feel like you've spent the whole day tidying already, is not easy, but it's an incredible witness to your children about the heart of God for them, his love for them, his compassion for them. And then we get to another tricky one, culturally. And Paul writes this, that they're also to be taught to be submissive to their own husbands. Now, there are a few key things that we really need to touch on here. The first is that there is no instruction here for them to submit to all men, to their own husbands. This is about family life. In, in God's word, all of us are called to submit to someone at some time, and many of us to multiple people in different contexts at the same time. Yeah, In scripture, we find that first and foremost, we are called to submit to God. And his ultimate authority. But we're also called to submit to our boss at work. Or to those in authority in government. As far as it accords with the teaching of scripture. Scripturally, wives are supposed to submit in the family to their husbands. This is something though, interesting... The word submit is about to put yourself in submission to. Like the, the word used is not about being made to submit to. It's something you do to yourself. It's a choice you make in obedience to God and in honor of your husband. It's very, very, very important that we understand that. It's imperative that we get it straight. Husbands, you need to hear this. Husbands do not make their wives submit. That is absolutely contrary to the teaching of Scripture. That's wrong. It's abusive. It's manipulative. And it's not acceptable. Husbands do not make their wives submit. It's for a wife to choose in obedience to God and in honor of her husband to do it. Not for a husband to request it or require it or attempt to enforce it. There is nothing in the teaching of submission as the Bible portrays it that facilitates abuse. The only way that happens is when people take the teaching of Scripture and distort it and make it something which it is not. A wife is never called to submit when her husband would lead her to disobey or dishonor God. She is never called to submit to her husband when he would ask her to violate her conscience. She is not called to submit to her husband in order to enable her husband's sin. She must not submit to abuse. This is not a call to submit to abusive behavior from your husband. If you are in an abusive relationship, you need to hear this. Get help. Speak to a godly older woman who you trust, who will help you. And if you are in danger in any way in that relationship, then get out and seek help. If a husband is sacrificially loving and serving his wife the way that God calls him to, preferring her needs, honoring her, then actually submitting to his leadership will feel safe because it will be, will feel secure because it will be. In an age of gender wars and toxic masculinity and militant feminism, a loving and secure godly marriage that Paul has in view 
when he writes to the Christians in Crete, is an incredibly powerful picture of the transforming work of the gospel in people's lives. Because in our own sinful nature, we have men and women who, who want to dominate and rebel and ab- take advantage of and abuse a marriage that is secure and loving where a wife's needs are put first by her husband and in response she willingly submits to his leadership is an incredibly powerful picture of the transforming power of the gospel. And then Paul gives a reason. I love this in Paul's writing. He so often when he asks us to do something, he gives a reason why. And he gives a reason that younger women should be taught to live in this way. He says this, so that the word of God may not be reviled. See, when our lives aren't lining up with the way God calls us to live, when our lives don't line up with the teaching of Scripture, then, then one of two things happen that call the Word of God and the authority of the Word of God into question and cause it to be reviled. The, the first is that either it is very clear to onlookers that we just disregard what the Bible has to say. Like we read it and go, nah, not for me, and we just carry on doing what we want. In which case, non-Christians who observe our lives will go, well, <laughs> like, the Bible clearly is not authoritative or even useful if Christians don't actually live according to what it teaches. And so the word of God is reviled. And the second is this, or, or people look on and say, this word is useless. If that's what it looks like to live according to God's word, If that's what it looks like to be a Christian and live according to Scripture, then we're not interested because their lives and homes are a mess. Like, I don't want anything to do with it. And so in those two ways, the Word of God can be reviled when we don't live according to the teaching of God in Scripture. And then Paul now turns his attention to younger men. We read in verse 6, he says this, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. He just gives one overarching thing for younger men. And in 2,000 years, I don't think much has changed. The need is just as urgent now as it was then, for younger men need to learn to exercise self-control. If a younger man would learn to exercise self-control, it would make a monumental difference to their lives. It would make a monumental difference to society. Younger men, you're not to be controlled by your appetites. You're not to be controlled by a lust of your flesh for comfort or approval or power or glory. You're not to be controlled by your sexual appetite. And if you exercise self-control, you will be markedly different from the world around you. Markedly different. The culture, media, and advertising, the marketplace encourages men to follow their appetites, to indulge their appetites. Younger men, younger men, show them. Show them what the gospel is like. Exercise self-control. The impact of younger men who actually exercise self-control on your families, in the church, and on the watching world, those in your workplace, would be huge. And I want to encourage you, it is possible. It is possible. It's hard, but it's possible. I don't believe we would be instructed in Scripture to do it if it were not possible. Now, I don't think it's possible on your own, but on... Leaning on God, his spirit at work in you, with brothers around you, and older men as fathers in the faith around you, encouraging you and spurring you on, holding you to account as godly examples. It's possible. And it's so important that we learn to exercise self-control. And then Paul calls Titus as a younger man who's the senior leader in this church community to model to them what it looks like 
He says this to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Leaders like we looked at last week should live in a way that accords with the teaching of scripture. Their lives should be a model of good works. And these good works need to be backed up with sound teaching and sound speech in such a way that no one outside of the church could point a finger at them and say, hypocrite. And in so doing, reject Christ. That's what Paul calls there. And then having addressed leaders, having addressed older men and older women and younger women and younger men, Paul now writes this. Slaves or bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Now, some of you might be a little bit kind of shocked or taken aback that Paul writes about slaves, and he doesn't say, slaves, get away from your masters, throw off your shackles, for you are free. (laughs) We need to very quickly note that Paul is not actually making comment here on the practice of slavery. That's the first thing. And that this slavery or or bond servant is not the same as colonial era chattel slavery that we tend to think of when we hear that word. Slaves or servants did include those in horrible conditions. But it could also mean those in apprenticeships or domestic servitude or, or actually even some who held government official positions. And so as difficult as it is for our 21st century brains to, to kind of get past that word or to read it without any, any thought or association other than that of a cruel and inhumane abusive practice, that's actually likely not what Paul is referring to. And in any case, this passage doesn't actually seek to address that subject directly. So in application for us and in our context, it's most helpful if we read it as employees because In many respects, that's who Paul is writing to. The principles that are put forward here are how we should seek to live as Christian employees. How many of you got a job? Pretty much all of you. Matt's a student, but other than Matt, pretty much all of you. He begins that slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. It's that unpopular word again. But employees are to put themselves in willing submission to come under the authority of their bosses, of their leadership in the workplace, of their employer. What their master asks them to do, or what your boss asks you to do, provided it does not conflict with the commands of God in Scripture, you're to do it without grumbling and moaning about him to your colleagues or her. The first priority in the workplace of a Christian should be, I want to do a good job to please my boss. Does there to be well-pleasing and not argumentative? Guys, Christians should not be argumentative with their bosses, with your line manager. And they shouldn't join in with office gossip, not seeking to undermine their boss, but instead to do what's asked of them with honor and respect and diligence and thoroughness. Goes on to write, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. You should be completely trustworthy. You should be trustworthy at work, completely trustworthy, not stealing in any way. If you were a household servant, the temptation to help yourself to small things would be huge, right? Temptation in, in the context Paul was writing to you, to take some money or some of the produce that you were sent to market to pick up for your master would be monumental. Or to just pick up something from around the home and and pocket it while you're doing your duties. In the workplace today, it might be a little bit different. 
but not too different. People's treatment of company property. You just pocket a stapler or, a, you know, it was just lying around. I accidentally put it in there. I barely noticed I did it. Some stationery, some sellotape. Maybe to do some printing on the office printer that you know you really shouldn't, but ah, no one will notice. Maybe more often time. Browsing the internet when no one's looking. Unless they have one of those kind of screen monitor things where they track whether your mouse is moving or not, then it's harder. But, you know, cutting corners, doing a half-hearted job, these all amount to the same thing. Just being slack, dragging your heels, turning up just a little bit late, leaving a little bit early, these all amount to the same thing. For a slave to behave in the way Paul encourages would have been an incredible witness to the masters and the other slaves. And the same is true today for employees. Think about your workplace. I want to ask, are the Christian employees in your workplace the best employees? Because they should be. Or maybe more pointed, are you? Like, are you the best employee? Are you the hardest working, the most diligent, the most responsive to your line manager? Or do you gossip about them around the... We don't have water coolers anymore because everyone works from home. But like, I don't know, however you gossip about your boss these days when it's homework (laughs) to your spouse, maybe. Paul is eager to point out that when we live as we're supposed to in the workplace, this is the outcome. He says this about slaves and to us about employees, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. That word adorn is like a piece of jewelry that has a fine stone set in it. And Paul is using this picture to say, this is what our lives are supposed to be like as Christians. That the precious jewel of the gospel is to be put on display in the setting of our lives in such a way that shows it off. That people look at it and go, wow, that's stunning. That's breathtaking. That's beautiful. That as a, as a well-designed ring shows off a diamond to its best advantage, our lives, the way we behave, the way we interact, the way we speak at home and in the workplace are supposed to show off the gospel to those around us. And so every one of us has a part to play. Mothers, brothers, fathers, sisters, employees, a community of people who truly live like these things we've read. Is an amazing apologetic for the Christian faith. Just think about it for a minute. Marriages of genuine love and care. Not conflict and frustration. Secure, strong marriages and families. Not warring between the sexes, but a relationship of love and respect and honor. Children who know that they're loved, who have incredible role models in their parents, but also broader in the church community. Older men and women who aren't despised or kind of cast on the heap because they've seen us past it, but instead who are loved and valued and respected and honored and and listened to and learned from. Intergenerational discipling and investment and support. Employees who work diligently and honestly and responsibly and respectfully. Guys, this is what the church is supposed to look like. Imagine the impact on those around us, genuinely, if we really lived out that. I think people would look at our lives and go, what is it about you Christians? We've got to know. Like, seriously, if we really lived it out, I think people would notice and they'd ask. People might disagree with what we teach, but it's much harder to deny the beauty of this kind of community. But now I've got to be honest. As I've prepared this week, As I've read these things this week, I I had to get away from my desk and walk and pray and and ask God, would you forgive me for the the myriad of ways that I fail to live this out? Forgive me for the times that I'm impatient or grumpy and in my grumpiness I fail to display the gospel to my family, to my children, to my wife. How in moments of laziness I can lack self-control and be prone to overindulgence. I can speak in a way that's careless and not honoring of other people. 
And as I've done that, I'm so incredibly glad that Titus chapter 2 doesn't stop at verse 10. Because if it stopped there, it would be pretty heavy, wouldn't it? Because we can all read those things in that list that apply to us and go, oh, (laughs) now I just feel condemned. We've got this call and this privilege to put the gospel on display, and yet we're not doing it as well as we'd like, let alone doing it perfectly. And all of this could easily feel like a crushing weight of do more, be better, try harder. But it doesn't stop there. Paul carries on in verse 11, and we read this, the best news. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Guys, this is good news. He gave himself for us to do what? To redeem us, to save us, to rescue us from all lawlessness and to do what? To purify us, to purify for himself a people of his own possession where we don't measure up. There's grace. There's forgiveness to be found in Christ. You need to know this as we go through that list. If you have put your hope and trust in Jesus, then you are pure in Him, righteous, holy. That's your standing right now before Him. Yeah? That's stunning, isn't it? Though we know we fail, though we know we fall short, He says, in Christ, you are pure. And this news brings us both hope for the future as it speaks of forgiveness. But I tell you what, it also fuels me and it spurs me on to want to live out these things that we've read together. To say, Lord, your gospel is so good. I just want to put it on display so that others would see and others would come and hear. Lord, your goodness to me is so great that I I just want to live in response to that. I I want to please you. I want to honor you with all that I am. Please fill me by your spirit again. Help me to exercise this. Help me to walk with self-control. Help me to speak in a way that honors you. Help me to live in a way that shows off your goodness and brings glory to you. And so we ask for his spirit to help us. I want to encourage you. We're going to come and take communion now. James is going to lead us and then we'll conclude our time together. But I want to encourage you to go for it this week. If you're older, find someone to disciple. If you're younger, find someone to disciple you. If you're somewhere in the middle, do both. And let's remember, in Christ, we're forgiven when we come to him. Pure, righteous. Let's allow it to encourage us. Let's allow it to spur us on to faith and good works for his glory this week. Hey, Come on, James.